Well, uh, this morning as we head into 2022, we're going to be starting a new sermon series through some select psalms. We're not going to be spending time in all of the psalms in like a chapter and verse kind of way because that would take us into like 2,300, something <laughs> It would take a while. Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible, and it contains the largest single chapter in the Bible. And it really would take us some time uh, to go through all of it. But we're just going to kind of, for a couple months anyway, bounce around some select psalms. And this morning, we are starting, logically enough, with the very first one, Psalm 1. I'm going to go ahead and read it now. You can follow along in your Bibles. Uh, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Uh, One of the things I love about the Psalms and why I want to spend some time in it as we head into 2022 is that the Psalms really are like a... um, almost like a textbook on how to worship with honesty. Uh, As we read our way through the Psalms, you find Psalms that reflect every human emotion. And what's unique about the Psalms is that they they teach us how to talk about those things in a way that's God-honoring. How do you worship in the midst of confusion? How do you worship in the midst of great disappointment? (laughs) How do you worship when your inner world is ravaged by sinful desires? How do you worship in the midst of horrific loss? How do you worship in the face of the evil prospering and God's people on their back heal? How do you worship in the midst of that? Well, the Psalms teach us how. The Psalms teach us how to talk to God even in the midst of feelings like that. And I I find it very helpful because the the book of Psalms is so raw. It's just so real and it's so helpful. And here, as we go into the very first Psalm, we start with a bit of review. We just recently worked our way through the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, every beatitude begins with what word? Well, it's blessed. And here, Psalm 1 begins with that same word. Now, in the New Testament, we're dealing with the Greek word makarios. And here in the Old Testament, we're dealing with the Old Testament Hebrew word esher. However, both words mean exactly the same thing. The cleanest and most direct translation of esher or makarios is simply this, happy, happy. Psalm 1 begins where we all hope to end, with happiness. 
Back during our study of the fourth beatitude, which says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, we made the observation on that morning that we spent together that happiness is found through the pursuit of something other than happiness, namely righteousness. Remember, I made the observation, Jesus did not say in that beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be blessed. Jesus didn't say that the happy people are the ones who hunger and thirst to be happy. He said, blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we made the observation that perversely, if a person makes happiness the supreme goal of their life, they will inevitably miss it and stray into all kinds of sad things. According to the Bible, happiness is never something that we should seek directly. It is always a thing that results from seeking something other than happiness. And thus the psalmist says, Blessed is the man, happy is the man, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The opening verse of Psalm 1 describes a person who is not seeking happiness. It's describing a person who is seeking righteousness. And in the pursuit of righteousness, this person, we're told, is blessed. They arrive at happiness. And that is wisdom. If you seek happiness and live for that, making it the main goal of all your life and your pursuits, you'll never get it. Happiness will always elude you. Consider something else Jesus said, also in the Sermon on the Mount. Later on in Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about what is, in many ways, the opposite of a blessed happiness, anxiety. And he says, in effect, he says, look, you're making a horrible mistake. You're going around, wringing your hands, asking all kinds of questions like, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? as though your happiness depended on food, clothes, and drink. And that's wrong-headed, says Jesus. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be thrown in to boot. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you're seeking happiness, and you're not going to find it that way. The more you try to make happiness the main goal, the more you try to grab it, it's like trying to grab water. It just, you can't do it. The harder you grip, the less you hold. And, and what Jesus is saying is, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, look for, seek something other than happiness. This is the counterintuitive path towards happiness. If you seek happiness, you'll never find it. It's always going to elude you. We should never make happiness an end in and of itself. It is always the indirect result of the pursuit of something other than happiness. And so it starts with this. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed. The psalm begins where we all hope to end up. And really, the first psalm serves as a general introduction to the entire book of psalms. And really, I think I can say, without entering into any hyperbole, 
It's kind of a summary message of the entire Bible. For uh, really and truly, the Bible only has one message in it. It presents that one singular message in a lot of different ways, but still, at the end of the day, the Bible is really about one central overarching message, and that is this. The Bible is the story of human beings and their relationship to God and what God has done about us and our need for salvation. As we read our way through the Bible, there is a lot of history. There's, a, there's even geography. There's kings and queens and bloodlines and wars. There are births and marriages and deaths. There are tales of love and jealousy and hatred. And strangely, there's a lot of farming too. But in all of it, all of these details serve to support that main overarching message or theme of the Bible, human beings and their relationship to God, and what God, what his plan is to redeem fallen man. We find this message in every part of the Bible. It is the great theme of the entire book. It is the theme of the Psalms. And here in the first Psalm, we find this essential teaching of the Bible distilled and concentrated into what is kind of a summary introductory statement. Psalm 1 introduces us to the doctrine of the two ways, which is a very common concept that we encounter in the Bible. The Bible does not deal much, if at all, in shades of gray. It presents most, or again, perhaps all, of the critical choices facing mankind as a binary A versus B kind of choice. Matthew 25 tells us that when Jesus comes back, he will divide people like sheep and goats to the left and to the right. There is no third way. God told his people through Moses that he had set before them life and death and he implored them to choose life. In the story of Noah and the ark, there is only those human beings who are in the ark and those who are outside the ark. There is no third category. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offers a series of A versus B choices that must be made. There are two gates. There are two roads. There are two trees and two types of fruit. There is the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus said, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. A versus B, to the left or to the right, get in the ark or stay out of the ark. There are two choices. There are two ways. And Psalm 1 is the, one of the earliest and most carefully developed of these A versus B two-way passages in the Bible. It clearly describes two different ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And these two different ways lead human beings to two different ends in the final judgment. And again, this is, in summary, the entire message of the Bible. This is the main point. We are not spending time this morning on something that is peripheral. This is 
the potato, not the gravy. <laughs> this is the main dish of the entire book. And between the description of the two different ways in verses 1 through 2 and the two different ends they lead to in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist employs some poetic metaphorical imagery to help us see, to compare and contrast what these two different ways are like. He says the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water and the wicked are like the shaft that the wind drives away. Uh, at, at this point in the sermon, uh, I'll, I'll tell you something. You know, I think people are just very different. We all like different things. Um, and over my years growing up in the church, I have heard a lot of different preachers. I don't know how many different preachers I have heard. But I have some definite opinions on the preachers that I like to listen to the most. I have a definite idea about what kind of preacher I would like to be. And uh, the preacher that I tend to like the most are those who maintain what I describe as a posture of persuasion. Uh, I, I like preachers who are always talking to the people who don't agree with them. They, 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 they tend to frame their remarks and they speak in a way that's sensitive to the fact that some people who are listening in are not in an agreement with them yet. They tend to make persuasive arguments rather than forceful proclamations. And I don't know how well I do that, but that's my goal. That, that's, that's what I'd like to be. And at this point, uh, because I'm, I'm talking right now with the idea in mind that there might be a non-Christian listening to me, I find the language that God uses here difficult. For example, the wicked. <laughs> that, that's an ugly enough term. But then he goes a step further and says, you know what the wicked are like? Do you know what you're like? You're like chaff. <laughs> now, that's... I'm tempted almost to feel like that's name-calling. That, that, that's a, that's a difficult thing to say to a person. If I called somebody, you know what you're like? If I said that to like one of my brothers or my sister growing up, you're like Shaft. My mom would have slapped me. <laughs> you can't say that. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. When we describe a human being as being like Shaft, what are we saying about them? We're saying they are like so much human debris. They are litter. They are refuse. They are a dry, empty, lifeless husk of a human being. That's a difficult way to describe somebody. What is Shaft? It's unvalued, it's unsubstantial, it is wind-tossed, it is shiftless, it is dry, it is useless, it is without potential. Worse than not having value, it is a negative, it is litter, and it is a slave to the wind. That's what chaff is. All that is true. All that is intended in meaning by God. 
But what I want you to see is that God is not name-calling. This is not an instance of divine trash talk. God does not want to tear anyone down with this language. In fact, his hope is the opposite. He does not delight in this description, and he does not want it to be true of you. One of the questions we should bring to this psalm is this, is God maintaining a posture of persuasion when he describes a person as chaff? Or is he merely tossing red meat language at his buddies in the church? I have no doubt that God is addressing a mixed audience with Psalm 1, and I'm persuaded that God's language and overall approach is a persuasive one. So why then does God use such strong, maybe even potentially insulting language in the view of some to describe non-believers? I believe that God wants all who are not yet followers of his, who are not yet Christians. I think God desperately wants you to see yourself as you are. Uh, as the poet Robert Burns said in his, uh, what's that song, what's that poem, Ode to a Louse or something like that? He says, of all the gifts the giver gee us to see ourselves as others see us. There's no Scottish people in the audience today, right? Please? Okay, good. <laughs> Of all the gifts the giver gives us to see ourselves as others see us, it is not a merciful or kind or loving thing to let someone operate within a destructive delusion. I've shared with you on other mornings before that I struggle with sleepwalking. I have a serious sleepwalking problem. It's a big concern for my wife. (laughs) Uh, at different times, it's been like at the level where you have to tie a bell to me. You know, it's kind of dangerous. Uh, but one of the things my wife has found is that when I wake up and I am sleepwalking, I'm very unreasonable. And the only way to help me snap out of it is to turn on the lights. As soon as she turns on the lights, I realize, oh, I'm not in a train tunnel. <laughs> I'm, I'm not someplace strange. I'm in my bedroom. I'm going to go back to sleep. And and I think with this kind of language, although, guys, it's it's harsh. It it is harsh. Shaft. This is God turning on the light. You must see where you are. You must see and understand the reality of the peril. You've drifted opposite the Almighty, and you're deluded if you think otherwise. He is speaking in a very frank way to wake a person up to the peril of their predicament. Here is a kind of person who will not stand in the judgment, whose way will perish. A person will not believe in Christ until they see their need for him. A person will not believe in Christ until they see see the ruin that they are. A person will not turn to Christ and believe the gospel until they have come to see that apart from him, they are nothing but chaff. 
However, still, this business of describing Christians and non-Christians as two fundamentally and essentially two different kinds of human beings, at least as different. The Bible is saying Christians are as different from non-Christians fundamentally, essentially, as a living tree is from the dry, empty, lifeless husk of shaft. This is an uncomfortable way of talking for most people. I would say uncomfortable for non-Christians, certainly. It must have about it kind of this air of Christian superiority. You're shaft, but we're like a beautiful tree, flourishing and bearing fruit. I think it is uncomfortable. It does sort of smack, I think, in the ears of some who might be listening in as a superior way of thinking of yourself. But on top of that, I think Christians are arguably more uncomfortable with this description than non-Christians. Because it is saying, God is saying, that you are fundamentally and essentially different than those in the world. And that's a lot of pressure. We look at our lives and sometimes we don't look that dissimilar. And so we don't like this kind of language. Of course, the world looks at us and they say, well, you're trying hard to appear different, but I think you're all just hypocrites. And in the church, we may not really disagree with that all the time. But we cannot escape the fact that God is saying here that Christians are essentially fundamentally different, at least as different as a tree is different from shaft. Christians, I find, want very much to be treated differently by God. But we don't like the requirement that we actually be different. <laughs> we love embracing the perfect holiness of Christ, but we chafe, I think, a little bit at the biblical demands that we be holy as God is holy. At the truth that an unholy church has nothing to say to an unholy culture. Maybe you've heard the saying, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And of course that's true, Christians are certainly not perfect. We are deeply imperfect, and our hope rests not on our own goodness, but in the perfect righteousness of Christ. In a moment, we're about to take communion, and what is communion a celebration of but the perfect righteousness of Christ? The sum total of our hope is in His shed blood. In his righteousness, his broken body, we have no resume of works by which to commend ourselves to God or to man. But we must also embrace what Psalm 1 and the rest of the Bible tells us is that when a person becomes a Christian and they receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they become a new creation, they become changed. Their inner world is transformed in a way that shows up in new ways of living. We become, by degrees, different from who we once were. Christians are a transformed people. We are a people who are in process of becoming like the God who saved us. A tree. And all of the words in this psalm, and of all the words in this psalm, the single word that puts the finger on the biggest difference 
between a tree and a bit of shaft. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the Christian and the non-Christian, is this word delight. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. This is the watershed word. This is the dividing place. That which separates a Christian from a non-Christian is what they delight in. What is worship? Worship is just the outward expression of what we treasure inwardly. Worship is nothing less than the outward visible expression of our inner invisible treasuring and delight. What we delight in finds outward expression in our worship. And delight is possibly the most fundamental difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. What do, what do I treasure? What do I love? What do I delight in? Let's take a closer look at the comparison that God is making between the person who is like a tree and the person who is like a shaft. I really just want to highlight two, possibly three different things here. One, when we describe a person as a tree versus shaft, we are saying that one of these two things is fruitless and one is flourishing. By describing the wicked as shaft, here's one of the most important things that the psalmist is saying about them. The ungodly person, the non-Christian, is a ruin. They are a dry, emptied husk. The word is emptied. I want us to really zero in on here. Shaf is what remains when you have taken the grain out. Have you ever eaten your way down through a, a thing of dry roasted peanuts? And at the bottom, all that's left are those little papery bits that nobody wants to eat. That's shaf. That is the shaf of the peanut. The grain is the fruit, the kernel, and around that is this dry, papery covering, the husk, the shaft. That's what shaft is. And in the winnowing or threshing process in ancient times in Israel, they would have beaten the wheat, they would have thrown it in the air, the wind would have caught it, and the heavy kernel would have fallen down and the shaft would have blown away. The whole goal, agriculturally speaking, is to separate the valuable life-giving commodity, this kernel, from the worthless refuse of the shaft, which is actually just in the way if you ever want to process the grain into flour, make it into food. You got to get rid of the shaft. So by describing the non-Christian in this way, God is saying that such a person has been emptied of what is of value. That which is vital and valuable has gone out of them, and they are now empty, a husk. Such people have lost their soul. They've lost their life. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are objects of wrath. Uh, it's a bit mysterious to my children, and frankly, it's a bit mysterious to me, but my favorite thing right now to watch on TV, and has been for a couple years, and I don't think I've ever shared this with any of you because I'm kind of embarrassed by it. <laughs> but here I'm just going to say it in front of everybody and on the internet because that's how I am. I really like to watch this show called Time Team on YouTube. Has anybody else ever watched an episode of Time Team? 
Who's with me? Okay. <laughs> Time, to, Time Team is this show from the BBC where they have this team of British archaeologists. And they'll go out to different sites all over the British Isles, and they will dig like a Roman villa, or they'll dig an old Iron Age roundhouse on a, on a promontory fort. And they'll just, they'll, over the span of three days, it's always just three days, they will excavate the site to get down to the mysteries of what used to be there. And I just love the problem solving. I enjoy the history, maybe. I, d I enjoy the personalities on the show. Uh, but there's always a, a, a segment in every show. Uh, two things always happen on Time Team. One is they find a potsherd every time. <laughs> Another thing is that they will dig down and they will have this moment where they feel like they are connecting with the ancient people that they're digging with. I remember I was watching one show and they were digging down, excavating what, what they believed was a, a Bronze Age uh, roundhouse. And in the middle of this, they dug down and they found a scatter of charcoal, a piece of pot, <laughs> and some animal bones. And I, I can still picture in my mind the archaeologists are all standing around this, this spread of charcoal, and they were waxing poetic about how this used to be the center of a family's life. You see the remnants of this fire? This is evidence that they sat here where we're standing, and they shared stories, there was laughter, there was food, there used to be walls here. And this at one time was the glowing, cheerful center of a family's life. And then you kind of zoom out, and it is just a ruin. It's just a stain in the ground. Everything that they are trying to fill in the blanks with words is just gone out of the place. The people are gone. The smells of the food and the cooking and the warmth of the fire, it is gone. They are just excavating the empty ruins of what once was. And when the Bible says that the ungodly, the wicked, the non-believer is like chaff, they are saying that man is a ruin on which there's a notice that says God used to live here, <laughs> but no longer does. You are a ruin of flesh, gutted, emptied of what used to be there. You are chaff. But the tree, the tree is the opposite of chaff. God is not describing in Psalm 1 two different kinds of tree. He is comparing a living tree with lifeless chaff. The tree has roots, it bears fruit, it prospers and perseveres, it has vitality and security. Don't forget this little bit of language. It is small, it's easy to miss, but it is very consequential. It says that the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water. That word planted, uh, that the tree cannot say, I am here, because I am superior, I am excellent. It says that you are, you've been planted. In other words, somebody else was the decisive agent behind your current condition. 
God is taking the credit. God is saying, I get the glory, you get the peace. I planted you. You didn't plant yourself. God spoke the world into existence, and he created Adam and Eve in his image in order that his glory might be made visible in the midst of his creation. And he made the world perfectly needy in order that those needs might be met perfectly in him. And here in Psalm 1, by describing you as a tree planted by streams of water, he is describing you as a needy creature, a needy organism. You need the water. You live in a state of continuous dependence on God. However, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the forbidden tree and thereby chose independence over God-dependence, it meant that all of their God-given neediness, which had been satisfied perfectly in the garden, would from then on be unsatisfied or at best imperfectly satisfied from then on. And we see this in the consequences of the fall. In the garden, Adam and Eve had drawn sustenance from the tree of life and the other trees in the garden, but now they become chaff. And mankind, I think, longs to return to our original home. And by that, I don't mean the Garden of Eden. Our original home was found in God himself and not in a place apart from him. We long for wholeness, health, peace, security. We long to be reconciled to God and to feel a sense of belonging and fitting in. We desire a life full of flavor, joy, and satisfaction. And the good news of the gospel, the good news I bring this morning is that there is a way back home. Jesus said he's the bread of life, and those that eat, who eat will never hunger again. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He became sin in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is as if, through Psalm 1, through the entire testimony of the Bible, Jesus is saying that our neediness can once again be perfectly satisfied in him. Through Jesus, we can go home again. We who are wind-borne, chaff, can become planted, rooted. Life can come back into this dry, empty husk if I would allow Jesus to plant me by the streams. And just as Adam and Eve had to go again and again to the tree in order to be sustained, a tree exists in a continuous state of needy dependence on the life-giving source, the water. Uh, the second thing I want us to see here is this, that the tree defies the storm, but the shaft is driven before it. Listen, I don't know what 2022 has in store for us. I'm brimming with optimism, though. I, I think this is going to be a great year. I think it's going to be a great year. I think it's going to be an awesome year for State Road. I think this is going to be awesome. But I don't know what 2022 is. I'm not a prophet. I don't have a crystal ball. I do know, though, from experience, that in 2022, there's going to be some storms. There always is. There's always some adversity 
The psalmist describes the tree as being planted by streams of water, and consequently, we're told, its leaf does not wither. This reminds me of Psalm 112, where it says this, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He's not afraid of bad news. I love that. This is just another way of saying his leaf shall not wither. Our vital, rooted connectedness to an unseen source and supply is what prepares the Christian for every season of life. It prepares us for illness, misfortune, and loss. It prepares us for middle age and old age and changes in the culture. It prepares us for difficulties with other people. It prepares us for the death of our loved ones. It prepares us for the reality of our own impending mortality. As Psalm 92.14 says, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Hebrews 13.6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or in Psalm 37, 25, David says, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Or what about Psalm 4, 11 through 13? For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is describing a tree that withstands the storms of life. And over and opposed to it is the picture of shaft, which is driven before the storm. Every gust sends them skittering and flittering. I think that this is the idea. One of the interesting things as we kind of break down Psalm 1 is it starts by describing a person who is in movement coming to a place of rest. You know, it says, um, I have to go there. It says, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's a progression in a career of evil, walking, standing, sitting. It's almost like painting the picture of like a fly that gets caught in a web. Don't fly near the web. Don't get stuck in the web and then don't get wrapped up in stationary. (laughs) It's almost like somebody who gets mired deeper and deeper and deeper into their sin until they are stuck, stationary. And then it goes in the other direction by describing such a person as shaft as opposed to a tree. A tree is stationary, it's immobile, it's fixed, but a shaft is just windborne. Now, both of these things are true. Uh, Both of these things, both of these descriptions are true. But the idea here I think we want to see most of all is just this. One of these things perseveres. It endures. It stands in the judgment. The other is will be consumed. 
But of course, the biggest difference between a tree and shaft is life versus death. And again, I, if you're a non-Christian and you're listening to me and you've listened all the way through to the end, I commend you. <laughs> the thing I want you to see is that when God says that a Christian is planted, Christians have nothing to brag about. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our, my Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> when, when I believe and embrace that I am now a tree planted by rivers of water, and when I say in the same breath that before I was chaff, I, I'm not bragging. <laughs> I have nothing to brag about because I was planted I didn't have the wisdom, I didn't have the means, I didn't have the wherewithal to do anything about my situation as chaff. I couldn't fix it. But God did for me what was necessary. God gave me life. The biggest difference between a tree and chaff is life versus being dead and lifeless. God has made me alive. And this is the language of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Please give this a listen, especially if you are not yet somebody who agrees with me. This is God speaking in his word, and he is speaking to a mixed audience, people who celebrate their life in Christ, and he is also speaking to those who remain far off. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were dead. You were chaff. You were emptied. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Just like chaff, the only thing it's good for is to burn it up. Get rid of it. Objects of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, and non-Christian, he loves you. He does not delight in this description of you. But he is turning on the light. He wants you desperately to see the danger of your position apart from him. He says you're chaff, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. He desperately wants that to not be true of you. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you can be saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, the things God wants to show you. The things God wants to give you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Fellow Christian, if this is a description of you this morning, we just celebrate together, and we're about to at the Lord's table. We are about to celebrate that the God who is rich in mercy has shown us such amazing love and grace. And if you do not yet agree with me, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then I want you to know that all of this can be yours. Grace is what God is offering you today. Grace is yours to embrace, to pick up or to leave on the table. You are a free moral agent. God is a respecter of your decisions. God will not force himself on you, but it is yours. The offer is on the table. All this promise of grace is it being extended to you right now, in this very moment. You can pass from death to life. You can become a new creation. You who once were dead in your trespasses and sins can be made alive in Christ. You who once were chaff can become like a tree planted by living waters. And the, optim- the, opera, the, 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 the word here to concentrate on is grace. Grace is this word that was repeated many times in the passage I just read, and what it means is that God wants to give you a gift that you do not deserve and you do not earn. Our salvation as Christian rests on what Jesus did for us, not on our resume of works. There is no one who is a Christian. There is no one who has found favor with God because they are good. Quite the opposite. A Christian isn't saved because they're good, decent, wholesome people. We are saved even though we are depraved and wicked. We are saved because Jesus is perfect, not because we're kind of good. In fact, the problem with most people is not their badness, it's their goodness that's not good enough. Anybody who thinks God's going to grade on a curve... And in the final analysis, God will look at me and say, you're not as bad as some. I'm going to let you into, my, into heaven. That's not how this thing works. That's not what God says about it. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be completely without sin. But the good news is, is that he is offering you grace, not a chance to prove yourself. He is offering you a gift, not hoops to jump through. And that is yours if you would embrace it today. I'm going to close out our time this morning before we take communion with a prayer. And if you're a non-Christian this morning, but you want to put your trust in Jesus for salvation, you can simply agree with the words I'm about to pray. They can be your words. This can be your prayer. You can become a Christian today. My only request, I'm not going to ask you to come up front or raise your hand if you did that. My only request is that you don't keep it a secret. Tell me or tell somebody else, some other brother or sister, if you've made that decision for Christ today. And if you're already a Christian, just pray for somebody who maybe is listening right now. 
Pray for that person that they would make the decision for Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, God, maybe there is one who is listening today who has not yet put their trust in Jesus for salvation, but over the course of our time this morning in Psalm 1, you have turned on the lights in their heart. They have awakened to a sense of the perilous position that they are in, that they are chaff, that they are dead in their trespasses and sin. They are not flourishing, they are fruitless. And God, they want to accept the free gift of life in Christ. And right now this prayer can be theirs. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I am cut off and separated. I know that apart from Jesus, I'm without hope. Jesus, I know that I'm not a good person, but I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. If I had only ever broken just one of them, that would be enough. But I've broken oodles of them. And God, I, I need a gift. I need a, I need a savior. I need grace. I need you to give me what I don't deserve. And Father, I put my trust in Jesus for salvation. I believe that Jesus lived the life I should have lived and he died the death that I deserved. And God, by putting my trust in him, I am embracing by faith that his righteousness has been transferred to me and my sin has been transferred to him on the cross. He took all my sin. All of your wrath was poured out on him instead of on me. And God, now by grace, I can call you my dad. Thank you, Lord, for this gift. Father, I pray that you would give me the Holy Spirit and help me to live in a way that's different. Change my inner world, God. My inner world, God, I'm so in love with the world. My inner world is marked by misshapen, disordered desires. God, give me a new desire. Give me a love for your law. Give me a love for righteousness. Give me a new heart and help me to be a follower of Jesus from this day until the end. In Jesus' name, amen.